welcome to this episode of the My Journey as a Physicist podcast. Each episode features an interview with a physicist to learn about their work, their interests outside of physics, and their professional journey of how they ended up where they are today. Season 2 features physicists involved in the particle physics planning community known as SNOMASS. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Gordon Watts. Could you briefly introduce yourself? What is your you know, field of purpose or study? Yeah, my field of purpose. I'm <laughs> a, a physics professor at the University of Washington. I've been there since, wow, a really long time now, since 1999. I, as any physics professor does, a combination of teaching and research. My research is mostly focused on uh, experimental particle physics. I am a member of the Atlas Collaboration, which is one of the two large general purpose experiments that's at the Large Hadron Collider over in uh, Europe, where I primarily focus on looking for physics beyond the standard model. The standard model is our generic model of, of how, how all of physics works at the fundamental level. We know it's missing. It's got some real some real gaps. Like, for example, we don't really have a dark matter candidate in it. However, it should contain it. And so one of the things that the whole field is is uh, endeavoring to figure out is what exactly is that extension to the standard model. So that's that's my main my main research focus. Okay. I, I let me I'll just just two more quick things. So the other half is I've been always fascinated since I was in high school by the intersection between physics and computers. So I've got, I do a whole bunch uh, of understanding and, and try to help using modern computing techniques and open source software to analyze and look at physics data. And then finally, the other thing I'm currently involved in, which frankly is taking up the lion's share of my time is trying to put together a large workshop this summer called Snowmass, which we can talk about if you want, but it's sort of the culmination of a two-year-long now study on understanding what particle physics, amongst other things, should look like in the next decade here in the United States. Okay, great. Let's start with the, some of the research that you're doing now. Um, mm-hmm. You said you're studying, or at least more generally, kind of one of the things you're looking at is like dark matter is, is beyond mm-hmm. the standard models. Can you describe mm-hmm. a little bit more of what it is that mm-hmm. you're, you and your group, your group is doing? Sure, sure. So about 10, maybe it's longer than 10 years ago, but something around 10 years ago, we were having a lunch conversation, a group of us, and we were, this was just before, this was a couple of years before the Higgs discovery, which was 2014. So I guess it is more than two, 10 years ago, but we were having a a discussion about where could the Higgs be hiding? And we were all getting pretty nervous because we'd accumulated a bunch of data and we were thinking we should have seen it by now. Of course, we saw it a couple of years after this conversation, but this prompted us to start thinking about what what could we have missed? What could what could have slipped by us? You know, we have these amazing detectors. All of us are sitting there, you know, sifting through this data, looking for any hints. What could have slipped by us? And the same question now applies to dark matter. There's lots of indications that you know, it could be at a lighter scale and lighter means usually easier to make and therefore we should have seen it. It could also be at a heavier scale. But if that was the case, that would mean we just roared right past it. You know, it's it's like, uh, what was it? One of my favorite movies, The Hunt for Red October, where you've got this uh, submarine 
pinging, so it can't hear anything because it's making so much noise. And so it's sort of the same thing with our detectors. Maybe we weren't being careful enough to look for these little signals. So after that lunch, through a collaboration with a, a theorist, one thing we realized that we might be missing are these so-called long-lived particles. So these are particles. They're, they're heavy, not that heavy, but they're heavy enough. And they're in a what we call a hidden sector. So let's say the standard model is one sector, and then next to it, we have a different sector called the hidden sector. And these two can't see each other. They're sort of invisible. What we'd say is they have different quantum numbers. They don't share quantum numbers. That means they don't interact. Except there's some tiny little communicator between the standard, the sta the standard model sector and the hidden sector. Maybe the Higgs would be the communicator. So the idea then is that you have, you're, you're making these particles here in your hidden sector, and they're massive. So they're the dark matter, or maybe they, the dark matter is contained in this hidden sector, which means you can't really see it in our detectors. So this is sort of how we would have missed it. However, in order to make the physics kind of work in this particular situation that we were looking at, these particles need to communicate a little bit with us in the, in the standard model. What this means is you'd have this crazy signature where you would produce the hidden sector at the center of your detector, and then some distance out, it would suddenly, the, the, the hidden sector particles would suddenly come back to being standard model particles. So what you would have is at your interaction point, and you have nothing, 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 and then blam, a whole bunch of particles would suddenly appear. The thing that's super cool about that, or at least to me at the time and, and still today, is that that looks exactly like detector noise. In fact, we designed all of our algorithms to eliminate detector noise. So what if the detector noise was actually the signal, right? And so my, my current searches for, for beyond the standard model physics focus on that, basically looking for some of these signals, which we may have been previously mistaking as, as noise, but are, are actually physics. So they're not as bad as noise. You can think through and understand a little bit about uh, how these things would be produced and adjust the algorithms that are in the, in the experiment to, to stop rejecting these and to actually search for them. But it's, it's difficult because there's, you know, there's 30 years of thinking that's built into throwing out noise. The detectors are designed from the ground up to not look for these sorts of things. So we're sort of asking a piece of machinery that was designed to do one thing to, to do another. So I, I like it a lot because it means, you know, like one of my grad students, I remember walking to the room and she had in front of her blueprints from how the detector was designed and built uh, 15 years ago, long before she thought about being in grad school. And she was trying to figure out exactly where, where the support structures were to understand how these energy deposits might happen. This is not something that you have to do with the normal, you know, normal uh, searches where you're just looking for standard electrons or, or, or uh, standard jet of particles or, or things like this. So it's a lot of fun because you get this vertical slice through all of, all of the experimental work that we do. And I find that, I, I find that really fascinating. On the other hand, it also means where many people can depend on other parts of the experiment doing some of the work for them for the analysis because there's lots of common things like an electron is an electron no matter how you're looking for it now we're looking for something totally different so we have to do all this ourselves or in a, a small separate uh, separate group and i should be careful 
to mention that it's not just one or two people. There is a team of people working on this, and I am I'm far I should be far from taking credit for uh, all of their all of their work. But it was really amazing to watch this grow from that conversation to combine with previous searches that have been done, and now it's kind of exploded. And now you you see results like this from all the major experiments. And uh, you know, I was there at the at the at the ground floor, and so it's it's been a wild ride and a lot of fun. Sadly, we haven't found anything yet, and so we're trying to we're trying to push even further. We're looking now, besides extending some of the searches in in Atlas, uh, and and you know, the people in CMS and LACP and other places are are also doing the same. We're also looking at building detectors that sit outside of these big general purpose detectors. So we've got this great name, Methuselah, reference, of course, to the to the character, but it's a search for ultra long-lived particles. And what we'd like to do is put it on the, the surface above the LHC. The LHC collisions are about 100 meters underground. So this means these particles would travel 100 meters before they hit this detector. And it's giant. It's like, you know, soccer fields or football fields, as they say here in Europe, large, maybe four, depending upon how ambitious we get. And building something like this is completely different from anything I've ever I've ever done before. The, the only rule here is, well, the two rules are, can you detect the particles and how cheap can you make it? because it's so big, you need to make it as cheap as you possibly can to, to make it affordable. So it's been a lot of fun. And those are those are sort of the, you know, that's a 10,000 meter v- overview of, of the mm-hmm. physics that I'm working on. Okay. And you had mentioned a little bit, how big is the, the group or collaboration that's that you're a part of? Okay. Well, I, you know, one of the fun things about being in particle physics is you're, you're, you're members of collaborations at many different scales. So at the University of Washington, I'm part of a group that's on Atlas, which is maybe 10, 12, 13, something something like that of order 10, uh, 10 people. But then I also within Atlas, I'm a member of a group that works specifically on the type of long-lived particle searches that I work on. And that group is about six or seven. It's recently expanded. We've gotten a whole bunch of new members because there's a lot of interest. So it's now around 10 people or something like that. And then we're also a member of a group where that specifically focuses on this type of physics. So I may be looking for long-lived particles in a particular part of the detector, but lots of people are looking for long-lived particles all over the detector. And you know that group is... I don't know, 50, it may be more than 50. I may be, I may be doing it a disservice there. And then of course, I'm also a member of a physics group, which looks for anything exotic, anything beyond the standard model, not just long-lived particle. And that's hundreds of people. And then of course, I'm also a member of Atlas, which is thousands of people. So there are lots of different groups. And when you take a physics analysis or an idea for a physics result, and you walk it from an idea all the way to a published paper, you move through all of those groups. So at some level, you are interacting and working with all those different scales. But most of the time is spent with the very small uh, analysis group or with my UW uh, friends. That's where I'd say you know 80% of the time is spent. Okay, very interesting. And then can shifting into Snowmass, can you can't yeah. describe what that is and what your role there? Mm. Okay. I can I can describe what my role feels like just moving email around. No, but seriously, which I guess is true of a lot of things in this modern age. So Snowmass is the idea behind Snowmass is that approximately 
once every 10 years. It's not really a, you know, a, a, like clockwork every 10 years, but about once every 10 years, the field of particle physics in the United States takes a step back and takes a holistic view of everything that's going on from the neutrino physics to the uh, some of the fixed target experiments, what's going on in the various labs like at Fermilab, what's going on internationally at CERN and the LHC and other things, looking at their plans, looking at the US plans, and then understanding you know, how, what, what is the proper way forward for the US? How do we play to our strengths? You know, how do we make sure we contribute to what's going on in the world so that we get the best possible science out? And it's a very much, what, one thing I really love about it is it's very much a grassroots uh, effort. So it starts with basically asking the whole community of particle physicists all over the United States, and actually there are collaborations that form outside of the United States as well, to come up with ideas and directions that we should be pushing. And then it's just start, sort of steadily, all of that is just sort of steadily pulled together into, excuse me, white papers, uh, you know, things of that nature, and then group reports, group reports, and then group group reports, and then eventually a full report. And so the thing I'm specifically you know, spending a lot of my time on right now is organizing the final large summer meeting in uh, Seattle. This snowmass, it, when it started, it was supposed to occur last summer, uh, but of course, COVID delayed everything. And in fact, people were feeling so burned out, we paused the process for almost a year just because everybody had so much on their plates, what with, uh, what with COVID. But now that we've restarted it, we're aiming to have this meeting this summer. And I have to say, it's really tricky trying to plan a meeting like this because what Omicron taught us was that Omicron can mess with your travel plans in about a 30-day uh, window. It's really impossible to, to know what's going to be happening with COVID more than 30 days out. You know, Omicron is, took about that long to spread and kind of get everybody shut down. So we figure by the time we get to a month before it, we'll know whether or not it's going to happen. But we have to plan as if it is uh, going to happen. And it's like it's balancing on a knife edge, trying to, you know, make sure that the conference doesn't go bankrupt or, you know, dock pay for the next 30 years. COVID uh, slams it shut. And at the same time, you know, provide a really good experience for everybody to show up. The, we've done this a couple of times before. It's called Snowmass because it used to be, used to occur in Snowmass, the place that's right outside of Aspen, Colorado. And we do it in the summer because it was cheap. You could just rent condos. All the ski condos are empty in the summer. So you can actually have them for a song. In, in some cases, we, we had them for less than what it's going to cost to rent a hotel in, in Seattle, unfortunately. And we, we put them all there. We put everybody there and we do it for three weeks. And there'd be, you, you would show up and you would do studies, I, I do a lot of things for three weeks. So in the morning, you'd have some intense meetings. You'd actually, you know, I remember being there. I was uh, trying to design a, par a charged particle tracker, which had intelligence uh, you know, computation like right on the detector so that it could make split, you know, instantaneous decisions about the sort of local view of, of the particles going by. I, I'd never done anything like that in my career before that. It was one of the most intense and fun uh, three weeks. So I would spend the morning and the early afternoon and the evenings working on this and then going to ad hoc meetings. And then the center of the afternoon, you just go onto the ski slope and walk straight up as a, you know, as a two hour break to just get a little exercise and, and allow your brain to think about something else. 
Uh, it's a lot of fun. However, uh, we changed that uh, format. And so now what we do is a year-long study where we do a bunch of meetings. Most of them have been virtual this time because of COVID. And it all culminates in this one central large meeting for, you know, that will occur in Seattle uh, this time. And, you know, we were hoping for about a thousand people before COVID. My guess is we'll get around 500 or something like that. At least that's what I would love to see is, is 500 uh, uh, this time. And it's in the mornings, it's going to be lots of simultaneous uh, sessions where everybody is working to finalize all of the great thinking and creativity that's gone on in the previous year, try to uh, build coherent visions. And uh, in the afternoon, we're going to have a very small number of larger talks where people, especially you, you get some cross-pollination. So the energy, the folks like myself who are in the energy frontier, who are working at the LHC are talking about what we think the next decade should look like from the point of view of, of our, of accelerators. And then the next day, maybe some of the folks who are working on the underground neutrino experiments will get up and they'll talk about what things should look like for the next decade from their point of view. And then we've got to figure out how to put this together because of of course, we have finite budgets, and we have to make sure all of this, this uh, works together. And out of it will come a series of recommendations. Those will be reviewed by uh, and, and holistically looked at by uh, another group, which will come up with a strategic plan for the United States for the next 10 years. And our experience is the last couple of times we've done this, the funding agencies like the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation have really been able to use that strategic plan to help guide how they fund the field. And so they've been quite successful. And it's great because, you know, we, we're the, the scientists and we can help set the, the right direction. Of course, there's lots of reviews and committees, so it's not like it's just whatever we want. But, you know, and, it, and it's also very nice because it occurs out in the open. It's quite transparent. But it's pretty gratifying. You don't get everything that you'd like to get, of course, but you you know, you you look at the direction and you say, you know, I was part of setting that direction. And it really, it, it makes you feel like you're, you're really part of the field uh, going forward. It was pretty satisfying last time. And I'm very hopeful the same thing will happen uh, this time. Okay. Maybe this is like too nitty gritty of a detail, but you talk about, you know, you only have so much budgets for like certain types of projects. So you have to take that in consideration. How much of that is determined ahead of time versus this snowmass camp? proposal or whatnot is something that you then show to like these funding agencies. This is the direction we want to go. Please fund us. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I guess there's no single answer. So you sometimes, so in general, budgets are, are tight for, for science. And this has been, this has been true for the past, past couple of administrations. Some have, have been a little tighter than others. But every now and then, suddenly there'll be an effort to it really inject some money into pure research, which is what this kind of physics is as opposed to applied research. Having a strategic plan means you can immediately point to something and say, look, our field knows what it wants to do. We've documented it. It's been reviewed ad nauseum. And even you as the funding agency have said, you know, okay, we, we see you. And so this means that we are in a very good place to take advantage of some of those sudden uh, increases that come along. Like for a while under Biden, there was this idea of doing a, I can't remember the name of the, the bill now, but of doing a, 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 research, uh, a research bill. And it would have had significant funds if it had passed. And because we had this old plan, 
we basically knew what we wanted to do. So it wasn't very hard for us to concoct a well thought out story. It wasn't just something somebody just made up uh, on a Saturday afternoon. We, you know, we could point to reams of documentation and that, that is, that is pretty powerful. The other place it helps is that, you know, inevitably during the budget cuts, it helps you understand where the field thinks its priorities are. And so, you know, okay, maybe we can delay this as opposed to do a, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to cut a budget, but one, one way to do it is to delay something so it doesn't happen as fast. But we kind of know from the field because of all of this work, what they would like us to delay versus, uh, you know, what should be given a high priority. So you know, it allows you to be flexible. And frankly, with the way our budget system works here in the United States, flexibility is an incredibly important important attribute so that you know you can take advantage of uh, times where where there's some more money and you can also understand basically what you need to do when there's times when there's less money yeah and that's really cool that you can't get the whole fields you know at least their voices are like semi heard of like these are kind of the directions we go as from like a researcher perspective how much do you feel conflicted with that and so it's like oh the field wants to move in this direction but my personal research interest i want to study this little thing and mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily follow that like do you find that it's often in line or do you feel like oh i, I need to study this thing because that's the direction the yeah. larger whole says we okay. should go so you know in the grand scheme of things let me start there uh give you a kind of a you know a, a generic answer first and then i'll get to something more specific but you know in the grand scheme of things we need to understand how the standard model is put together and where it's going to go next i mean what what are the proper additions what why is it that we're surrounded by matter and there's no antimatter where where is dark matter dark energy excuse me dark uh, dark matter how does dark energy fit into this puzzle we know that the neutrino has masses and the standard model that we've got right now doesn't even give neutrinos masses. So we know that there's work to be done. We just don't know exactly which direction to make these extensions. We really need some specific experimental data to to give us hints. There are lots of ways to get that data. Particle physics, the colliders and, and neutrinos, those are just that's just some of the stuff that's on the menu to help us find a, a new direction. I, I think there are certainly people who think they know which direction we should, you know, is most likely to bear fruit. I mean, we all have we all have opinions, but nobody really knows for sure. Of course, if we do for sure, then we wouldn't need to have this conversation. We just fund the damn thing, uh, whichever, whichever it was, and and off we go. So in the end, to me, the most important thing is that we make steps forward to understanding what are these extensions to the standard model? What is going going on with, with dark matter? We, we need to figure those things out. So in the end, I'm basically happy as long as we in the United States and the world are pushing, are pushing on that. Now, I have my own opinions about you know, which ways are, are the best ways to go. And you know, my opinions happen to cost a lot of money, unfortunately. I would very much like to see higher energy colliders. So we'll probe, probe up and up in the scale. This is not cheap. And it's also just by its nature, even if somebody just threw buckets of money at this, it's not something that would happen quickly. Because like everything in this field, you always try to do something that's technologically harder than what you can just do by default today. You always try to push the push the limits. You can't build these machines very often because uh, they're so expensive and they're so large. So it behooves you to really, you know, push the limits. So, you know, I'm all right with not having huge amounts of money spent now 
and there are shorter term projects. And in fact, really any science menu really needs a combination of things that will bear fruit short term and long term. You need you need both of those in any research uh, research. But you know, I would very much look in the outcome of this to make sure that we are on a path to reaching higher energy scales uh, one way or the other. I would like to see certain machines built, but you know, if it's not that machine and it's another, as long as it's getting to the higher energy scale, I'm basically going to be happy. And also I'm mid fifties now, uh, building these machines is 20 year endeavor. So that puts me at 75. <laughs> I am unfortunately not going to be making lots of plots probably when I'm 75, probably won't even know how to use a keyboard anymore because it'll been completely revolutionized or something. But as long as we are pushing towards those goals, I'm, I, I, will be, I will be happy. There are lots of people with great ideas for smaller projects. But the nice thing about smaller projects is you don't have to think about those as carefully. They, the smaller projects tend to be cheaper and you can just sort of put them in like, oh, it turns out this project's gonna get delayed because it turned out it was much harder to make these magnets than we thought. So we're gonna have to push this a year. Oh, that frees up a bunch of money this year. Oh, well, here's this nice little idea. Let's just squeeze this in because we have a little bit of uh, funding that got freed up due, due to the delayed schedule for some technical uh, reason. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. And from the point of view of planning, it's only the really big projects that you have to be careful to get right. The smaller projects, you find nooks and crannies every now and then where you can sort of slip them, slip them in. And those I think are, are really important also to a vibrant physics uh, research uh, landscape. I, I don't know if I really answered Very that nice. question in the end, but I hope that was helpful. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that, that, yeah, I think that was very helpful in, in essence of everything. Yeah, just because I was, I was kind of curious how, especially like these large scale projects yeah. like that sort of work. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, how did you first, when did you decide that you wanted to be a physicist or first get I, uh, interested in physics? Okay, this is going to be kind of lame. So it's basically my dad. <laughs> so my dad was a particle physicist as well. And when I was in high school, he got me a, you know, a job in the stockroom in the physics department. So that was my very first exposure. And actually the work that I did there was helping write a, helping update or upgrade a stockroom program, you know, tracked when people in the physics department check stuff out, they had to, you know, give an account number, et cetera, a number of pieces they, so this stockroom program was written in a Fortran derivative called Flex. So I cut my teeth there and I learned, I, that was where I first got interested in co computers. And I learned there that I actually, I really liked computers, but I didn't really have a framework to put that in. And it wasn't until a couple of summers later, they needed somebody who was good with code. And they, it was still, I was still in high school, I think. And they asked me to help them with a readout system. So this is reading out an experiment. They were trying to build a, a, a data acquisition system. And I loved it. I was I, I was programming weird hardware. Couldn't use normal code like you would today, like I don't know Python or or C plus plus or anything like that. It was this really strange processor running on. Uh, it was a Lacroix Fastbus processor, which had like multiple parallel units, and you had to program each unit. It was a lot of fun, and 
I was actually looking at data that was coming out just doing really simple cosmic rays. This is something any senior physics, undergraduate physics lab will have something like this. They'll be looking at cosmic rays. And that was where I realized, uh, you know, that I really liked the kind of the intersection. It was actually the intersection between the hardware, computing, and the, and the physics. And then I got this opportunity, which was, thank goodness, not connected with my dad, finally, <laughs> to go over to Japan to help out with that same project. But after it had gone from sort of a test bench to actually being installed in a, in a detector. And so I spent a summer in Japan and helping bring up a data acquisition system for an experiment called Amy. And that's where, you know, the, the deal was kind of sealed for, for me. And it wasn't just physics at that point, it was uh, particle physics. And this was my first year in, uh, first year as an undergraduate. I was down at the University of Texas at Austin. But then I decided, you know, I really had to try other stuff out. And so every summer I would spend it in somebody's lab at the University of Texas at Austin. So I did a whole bunch of labs, including this really fascinating time in this in this uh, fluid dynamics lab, which was uh, very cool. So I tried a whole bunch of different types of physics, but I decided in the end, particle physics was, was for me. And yeah, I really haven't looked back since grad school. There was just, you know, when I was applying to grad school, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. And that's... Uh, you know, that's not normal. Uh, <laughs> most, I would say the bulk of the graduate students I know are still working it out when they first join uh, grad schools. Okay. And so then yeah. it sounds like you've been interested in like the computational or like computer side of things too, from the beginning. So like as an experimental physicist, especially with particle physics, how much of your work is just, is it all just reading data computationally from a distance? Do you actually build anything or work with equipment like hands-on? Yeah. One of the fantastic things about being in uh, experimental particle physics is you can you can maneuver and guide your career in the direction that, that you want. So I know plenty of people who are experts at building detectors. I mean, they're, they're like, they make me think of, you know, what I would think of a Renaissance craftsperson, right? Is that they just you know, if they have to sit down and they have to build a, a, a tracking chamber or something like that, it's just watching them go through the iterative procedure of building one of these is, it's pretty magical. And they've, they have guided their career to, to do that. I have guided my career to steer more towards the computational side of, uh, side of things. So for, for me, not only do I spend a lot of time looking at the data with my grad students and postdocs, but I also spend a bunch of the time working on the tools that allow us to look at the data and, and hopefully allow us to do it more quickly. And it's not just people like me that use those tools. Hopefully, you know, the folks who are detector experts will also get to take advantage of these tools because, you know, they want to spend as much time as they can on when they're not doing the, the actual physics and paper measurements, they want to spend time working on the detector stuff. And if they can look at the data faster, they have more time to, you know, build detectors. So I very much guided my career in that direction. That was very much a conscious decision on my part, as it is with with many of us. I mean, it's, there are so many, you know, this field of research is just filled with so many great problems that need to be attacked. And almost, you know, not all of them are physics, but almost all of them are intellectually, you know, interesting and worthwhile. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. And you can, you can kind of pick your way and guide yourself in which direction you go. Great. And then throughout all your work and, you know, your professional career and all that, were there any obstacles like that you had to overcome during, during your, your career? Yeah, well, you know, I've got survivor bias here, so it's a little a little hard to think about. I mean, there were 
let's see if I, what was, what were my darkest? I, okay. So my darkest days probably came. So back when I was a postdoc, the superconducting super collider, which was this giant accelerator, which would have outclassed the LHC had it, had it been completed, was being built down in Texas, Waxahachie. Uh, Texas. But it was, it was during the Reagan years. It was a line item in the U.S. budget, and it got canceled during the budget, the budget cuts. But the way the the way Congress canceled it was actually pretty harsh. They basically said, "Full speed, stop," and there was no real ramp down. There was a huge fight that gave it kind of a year long ramp down, but the the folks in Congress just didn't care, and or at least the ones that were voting that way. And the result was that the market was flooded with all of these super experienced, really smart people who had been working on it. And suddenly the rug had pulled out from underneath them. As you might imagine, you know, new people coming in and looking for jobs would were now in a market that was also saturated with people with much more experience looking for jobs. So this was right around the time, it was about a year before I normally would have started looking for a professor, professor position. So I looked at this market and I looked at some of the people out there and it's like, no way am I going to ever get a job. And that was, you know, there was, was probably, it, it was probably a year of, you know, trying to understand whether or not I'd be happy going to industry um, you know, trying out different things than I than I was already. That basically working really hard because of where we were in the the project that I was working on at the time, and and thinking, why why am I working this hard? There's really no, there's not going to be a future. And I was just absolutely insanely lucky to get this job at uh, the University of Washington, where I am uh, now. And but I waited, you know, I delayed a year before really going out and and looking. And it was I'm I'm decent and I I work hard, so it's not that I didn't deserve the job. But when you look at everybody that was out there, and you know, you look at the other people that were competing for that uh, that same job. I mean, there are so many of us that were above threshold. It it just feels like it was random luck that I I got uh, I got picked. And that was probably you know, if I look back, that was. Probably, I, I, I'm. There were plenty of other dark points, you know. I, I'm. There were times where I don't think I was getting good grades as I wanted or something. But those have all sort of disappeared into the the noise of life in general. You know, there are times where you know grants don't come back as as much as you would like. But I've now survived those, and so they they somehow aren't aren't as big in my psyche as uh, as they were when I was going through it. You had been at University of Washington's where you've been the entire time since your postdoc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was a postdoc at uh, Brown University and a grad student at the University of Rochester. And yeah, so my career has been fairly straightforward. It's been, you know, a real privilege. Okay. And so kind of wrapping up towards the end here, do you have any advice for students or young researchers, you know, kind of the early stages of their career? So I think the biggest piece of advice I've got is you're better than you think. I see this continually in the folks that I'm advising. I will push them, for example, to apply to you know better schools than they're applying. And about at least half the time they end up getting into those those better schools. And it's just, it, you know, and the same thing was, pro- I'm sure the same thing was happening to me when I was going through a lot of that. It's just, there are some amazingly smart people in this field, but everybody else is looking back at you and saying, wow, that person's really amazingly smart. I don't know if I can compete for this job. And we're all thinking, 
maybe not all of us, some of us have egos that are large enough, but you know, we're all kind of thinking that. And I guess maybe that's one of the the key pieces of advice I've got is is really most of us are are better than we we give ourselves uh, credit for. And then the other the other thing I guess is, and you know, this is maybe longer term, and I suppose it like that other advice, it it applies to more than just uh, uh, physics. Is that all of this is a team sport. We, you know, it really, really by working together with others, we get so much further in the the research and our understanding of of the field, and and frankly, doing things we like than we would if we tried to work at it alone. And I know physics is often traditionally thought of as, you know, somebody alone at their desk, you know, with the sort of it's a dark room, little light spilling onto a piece of paper. And that really isn't what it looks like uh, anymore, except in, you know, that's the maybe some rare cases people manage to make it like that. But now it's it's vibrant, vibrant, in many cases, community driven. And you really, really get a lot of extra power working with others. And you can yourself, I think, solve much bigger problems by working with uh, with others than you would be on your own. I don't know. I, I was just trying to think of if, if I had more time, you know, if I'd prepared that question, if I'd come up with different things. But but I guess that off the top of my head, those are the two things that I, I think of. And of course, right, the the last one, I guess maybe I'll just say is you got to be open and and welcoming. You know, this is a lot of hard work, especially if you go into academia. There's there's a lot of pressures and you know, we very much do need each other's support to make it through some of the tougher times. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for coming on and doing this this interview and, you know, sharing sharing your kind of journey and experiences here. Great. Uh, Brian, it's been a pleasure. I, I hope this is useful to you and your, your listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. This podcast was created by Brian Stanley and Professor Wei Wen Lin. Season two was edited by Varley Sakorikar. Thank you for listening.